Hello and welcome. Welcome back to All Things Urticaria, your UCARE podcast. My name is Marcus and today I have with me again, and I'm very happy about this, Martin, my friend, fellow urticariologist, um, office neighbor. So we're actually in the same room. Hi, Martin. Hello, Marcus. Nice to be back again. Look, I don't think our listeners realize that usually when uh, I invite guests, we are thousands of miles apart, but it's really fun to have you here in my office, which is right next to your office here in the Paul Ehrlich House, where we uh, work as UCARE, ACARE, Institute of Allergology, HRITE, Fraunhofer Institute. And today is a first in the history of all things urticaria because we will be dedicating this episode focusing in this episode on a suggestion received by you one of our listeners the question at hand is with all these new treatment options coming our way in clinical trials right now for chronic urticaria chronic spontaneous and chronic inducible urticaria how will this change the way we treat patients with urticaria in the future? In other words, what will guide us in our recommendation for individual patients as to the best treatment moving forward? And I want to leave that question as broad as it is and get a first um, first answer from you, Martin, and then let's discuss a little bit. Uh, I do think that we need to discuss because um, at the moment we can only say what we hope that will happen. Sure. And um, to talk about this, the hope is, clearly is that we will have um, a personalized medicine. So the idea is to see the patient, to ask a few questions, maybe take a blood, take some blood, and then know. Okay, for you, we have this drug, which will work within a few days and um, everything is fine. And for the other patient, it might be a different one. So so, so probably, the, I mean, we will have different drugs available. So hopefully this will be happening. But at the moment, uh, well, we, we can't say for sure whether this will indeed happen. Of course, but you know, we want to be ready. And uh, one of the questions I get asked a lot is, what can we do now to get ready to better understand what new treatment is best suited for individual patients? And I think at this point, we need to dig a little bit deeper and talk about these different treatments that are currently under development. And maybe also talk about the biomarkers or let's say predictors that are currently available to guide treatment. Maybe start with what we have. Today we only have antihistamines and omalizumab for chronic spontaneous urticaria. Um, Sindhu, chronic inducible urticaria is yet another story, but let's focus on CSU, chronic spontaneous urticaria first. The algorithm is as simple as it is um, yeah, 
uh, unhelpful, I was going to say. It is helpful, of course, but everyone gets everything depending on um, how they respond. No, we start with an antihistamine. If it doesn't work, uh, we go to higher doses. If it doesn't work, we go to omalizumab. If it doesn't work, we go to higher doses of omalizumab. And of course, we have some biomarkers that allow us to predict, but based on these biomarkers, we would not withhold antihistamine treatment or updosing or OMA or OMA updosing from any patients because we don't have other treatment options. Now, I think we can all agree, uh, see you not, that's good, uh, that dupilumab will be um, the next drug to come to us for chronic spontaneous urticarius. Fingers crossed, but uh, we are in the final stretch of uh, getting this as another treatment. And my question to you is, how do we use it? Well, Marcus, this is quite a good question. Um, that will be interesting to see how we will answer it. Um, because, you know, what, what we know so far from the Dupilumab trial data, or at least from what um, the company um, presented, is that it works in patients that have not seen Omanitsumab right. before. So, um, which also implies that it does not work at least as well in those patients that did not respond uh, to it. I'm glad you said as well, because yeah. you and I, we know, um, and if only by the treatment of patients in real life, that it can work in patients who had partial response to For sure. or non-response to OMA. And, you know, we have to see um, most of the data from that study in patients who had received OMA, did not respond to OMA, and were then treated with dupilumab. But be that as it may, um, I think we both see dupilumab as a treatment for patients who did not respond or sufficiently respond to an antihistamine. So yes. let's say on the same level, coming from a guideline point of view, where OMA is right now, are, are there any answers that patients can provide to our questions. Any blood markers you've alluded to, take a little bit of blood and see um, who could respond better to which treatment that today would guide you in choosing OMA or dupilumab for individual patients? Well, not so much a marker or uh, anything specific rather than the history of the patient. Okay. Um, so I guess, you know, we will have to talk. I'm, already talked to our patients, hopefully, but um, we we have to uh, assess comorbidities um, and the strength of dupilumab for sure is its broad um, approach in, in targeting uh, TH2 um, inflammation mm. and the associated diseases. So it is approved for six uh, different indications already. So if if there is a comorbidity within this. I mean, this is for sure something, one, where we think, um, you know, the patient could benefit twice or yeah. three times, but two, um, it, it may also hint towards a more TH2-driven, possibly at least, we don't know, um, uh, underlying mechanism Absolutely. of carrier. But OMA is following suit. We now also have Absolutely. several indications, several diseases 
um, where OMA can be used. Um, so be a challenge to see, um, and we need obviously uh, good real world data comparing outcomes moving forward, be a challenge to see how that works out. Um, there's one, one thing that we discussed earlier, our listeners don't know that, but we're going to tell them now, and that is that in some patients who um, use dupilumab, we see that when we stop, as we do with OMA and dupilumab in complete responders um, at some point in time, hoping for spontaneous remission, as we stop dupilumab, the signs and symptoms often do not come back or let me be a little broader, do not come back as fast if they do come back as compared to omalizumab. I'm going to throw this big word out there, Martin, disease modification. What do you think? <laughs> ah, well, so um, I think there is a chance, um, but I also, that, that, that there is disease modification. I mean, this is something that we really are looking for in Monteguerra because there just is nothing like this at the moment. So, I mean, we know from all of these years with Omalizumab that, that there is no relevant Correct. disease modification happening. And um, so um, we hope that there will be something new to carry out. Now, is this Dupilumab? Um, I'm afraid the data is just um, too uh, little at the moment oh. to, to conclude anything. But, but of course, there could be uh, disease modification because we are also um, targeting B cell and autoantibody production possibly uh, by targeting IL-4 receptor alpha via uh, dupilumab. So hypothetically, yes, it works. And um, clinically, we have some information from a small number of patients. Yeah. Um, but of course, the numbers are too low to 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 really say that yes, this is happening. Oh, yeah. But there is a possibility, and yeah. this is something we have to look out for um, in the future when treating these patients. Another call for collecting data. Maybe Cure is the way to do it. Maybe Cruise right. can help. Yeah. Um, so let's let's move a little bit further and um, look at what is possibly the next drug that will come to us, uh, BTK inhibition with remibrutinib, uh, very far advanced. And again, disease modification comes into play. Now, your paper, um, beautiful paper, and uh, the study with fenibrutinib showed disease modification. I think we can, we can call it that, in that the drug acts on um, mast cells, of course, shuts them down, but it also acts on the cells that produce the autoantibodies that drive mast cell activation. And that's uh, deep inside the immunology of CSU and bringing these levels down actually changes, modifies the disease. Would you agree or? <laughs> Well, at least for some time, and, and sure. this is again the point that we just don't know how, how long we modify this immunological um, response. So um, whether this is a truly long-lasting effect, we just don't know yet. But um, these BTK inhibitors, I mean, other BTK inhibitors are also used for other autoimmune diseases because of this sure. effect on the production of autoantibodies. But even in that, other indications, um, we 
as of yet don't know how long this uh, reduction alternating body production lasts. So yes, again, possibly we have a disease modifying um, mechanism, but maybe it's just a long lasting mm. efficacy, which is also. Mm. But you know, the other effect that we know already right now um, for the BTK inhibitors that is that that it does work on those patients that are very problematic at the moment. So those where we don't have a good response or no response at all to UMA. Um, and these are patients uh, where we also have a chance with the BTK inhibitors. Yes, no, absolutely. As you were um, explaining, uh, I was just thinking, what is disease modification, oh, okay. especially in in chronic spontaneous urticaria? I mean, we talk, we've, we've talked as of now of four, four different approaches, antihistamines, omalizumab, dupilumab, remibrutinib, um, that are all mast cell targeted or targeting mast cell mediators or pathways of mast cell activation. And I think that we probably need to go beyond that and look a little bit at the immunology that drives uh, mast cell um, aberrant responses uh, in chronic spontaneous urticaria. And maybe we as a urticariologist community should try to wrap our head around that uh, concept of disease modification and how we would really um, define it in the setting of chronic spontaneous urticaria. But getting carried away, let's focus on uh, what uh, uh, the question was, uh, by the way, thank you very much for raising this question. Um, we do appreciate uh, our listeners' input and we do take it on board when we plan further episodes. So keep them coming. Uh, always, always nice to know that we're talking about things that you find relevant. Martin, um, you started by saying we would like to know what is the best treatment for each individual patient, the four treatments we talked about. I think we will agree um are treatments that will help some patients more than others right depending on the underlying cause their endotype as we say um and guided by biomarkers but there are i sometimes call them all comer treatments mm -hmm. where no matter what drives muscle cell degranulation and no matter what mediator coming out of muscle cell is the most prominent, um, these approaches uh, will work or should work right. or have been shown to work. And specifically, I'm referring to mast cell silencing and mast cell depletion, where, well, if you have mast cells that are asleep or mast cells that are dead, you should not be having wheels and itch and angioedema. So how do we position in our head, these all-comer treatments, potential all-comer treatments like irantelimab or barzolvolimab or other anti-kit uh, antibodies versus the more endotype targeted treatments. Well, again, something that um, we all have to work on in the next um, years, I think, to to identify the best treatment options for our patients and. Um, to guide us on how we how we treat our patients. At the moment, I think we have to say that it's a well. We have to look as always at, on efficacy and safety. And safety, of course. Um, and uh, you know, in, in urticaria, we, we really want to have a clean safety profile, especially since we have um, with omalizumab already a very safe 
drug that works well in, in a large proportion of patients. So um, just as an example, if we if we have a specific biomarker, let's say we can identify in our patients auto IgE mm -hmm. and can tell, okay, you are a clear type one autoimmune um, uh, CSU patient, um, then, then I think this will be a patient where omalizumab is, is the ideal drug. We can tell him or her, um, hey, within days he will be free of symptoms. Sure. Um, so, so then there is no need for an all-comer drug um, um, that, that may come with some more um, adverse events, maybe. But um, if we don't have this, then, then an all-comer approach is, of course, much more interesting, especially if we are 100% or almost 100% sure that it will work. And then it's um, uh, depletion of, of mast cells, um, of course, something that um, fulfills this criterion of, okay, we have something that, yeah. that will work. So here it is all about safety. Um, if, you know, if there are aspects with the Kit inhibition, we know that there is grain of hair, there are some taste um, uh, changes that need to be discussed with the patients. Sure. Um, and for mast cell silencing, I think it's um, it, it will be a question of the um, efficacy. And it will be interesting to see yeah. when we achieve really uh, efficacy that is beyond OMA, mm. close to mast cell depletion, mm. without any side effects. Mm. Well, mm -hmm. I see you smile. That's I, something you're looking forward to. <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 I think it will be difficult to find a place for the other drugs, then. Yeah. but only if you know. So so um, we have to wait for it. Yeah. For this, I guess. Yeah. So I I guess we've been talking purely uh, medically here, no, um, or scientifically, if you want. No, there are many challenges that come with making the right choice with patients on the treatment to move forward. You said if we were to be able to measure auto IgE, but point is we cannot. There's a very few centers on this planet that have essays to detect IgE against TPO, IgE against interleukin-24, IgE against transcriptomenase 2, and uh, the other autoallergens. So, uh, basing our treatment recommendation decision on a biomarker requires that we can all uh, do this biomarker. And of course, you know, we talked about autoimmune chronic spontaneous urticaria, where some of us have access to basal testing or to IgE measurements to see if they're low. But in terms of auto IgE, we still have a long way to go to be able to uh, base our treatment yeah. decisions on on that. And then, of course, there are many other uh, aspects that have to come on board. No patient preference. Um, you and you and I, we, we share some patients where it is exquisitely difficult to convince them that injection <laughs> is the way to do it. And uh, an oral treatment is by far preferred. You know? And access to treatments, of course, is another a huge issue on a global scale is for us to talk about what drug to use. We have them all uh, here in our country, in our setting, but that's by far not the case for all of them. And um, But that's a good situation, right? It's a so, great situation. So, so to have an option, to have sure. injectable, to have orals, because, you know, we, we also have these patients 
that actually much more prefer an injection every two weeks, every first week, or so maybe even less to a daily intake of a tablet. So, so it's good to have this flexibility. Absolutely, and we need more. And if it sounds like we'll be getting so many that we don't know how to decide, no, 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 no. That, uh, you know, uh, let's uh, remember that about half of chronic spontaneous urticaria patients are uh, currently untreated for whatever reason. Many of them given up on us and uh, in part because we don't have treatments to offer. And I think also the fact that new treatments will be coming will result in more patients looking for us and will result in more awareness of the disease and how it can be treated will hopefully also result in further energy in the urticariologist community to spread that knowledge with general practitioners. Um, by the way, if you missed the episode that I recorded with Dermot Ryan uh, on the GP role in chronic spontaneous surgery, go listen to it. Uh, he was great to have. Um, but Martin, I see we uh, kind of have to wrap up the discussion here, but um, let's let's talk about one last aspect that I think needs to needs to be discussed, and uh, that is where do we go from here? Well, we've talked about targeting mast cell mediators. That's good. Targeting mast cell activation pathways, putting them to sleep, depleting them. But aren't we staying on the surface here? You know, if we really want, and you said we do, disease modification, or let's look at the big picture, cure, then how should we be thinking? Who should we be helping? What targets come to your mind when we want to go deeper, upstream if you want, of mass cell activation to change that disease, cure patients? I mean, there is no reason to stop here and to be happy with what we have. So we have to go on. And um, you mentioned one reason for doing this. The other is, I think, to to uh, we discussed in the beginning to find the individually the best drug for the individual patient. But I mean, if we if you're asking on how do we proceed to go to to come to cure or to to really have profound disease modification. Well, I think at the moment it's just research that we can do in better understanding of what's happening, what's inducing. I mean, we, we by now we know that this is an autoimmune disease, something that we didn't uh, uh, in the past. Um, so most, if not all of the patients have autoimmune um, autoantibodies. Autoantibodies are involved in, in, in some so, way or the other. So. How are these autoantibodies induced? Why do the plasma cells uh, start producing these autoantibodies? What are the B cells doing? What are the signals telling the B cells to become um, an anti autoantibody producing um, the plasma cell? These are questions that um, may help in the future um, potentially get towards a cure. But here we are not alone. You know, we we um, we are. Uh, together with other autoimmune diseases that are looking at this at similar questions. And um, I think that you know, 
doing research together in the same direction uh, may also help um, in treating our patients with empty care. Thank you, Martin. Perfect closing here because doing research together, this is what you care is all about the urticaria centers of reference and excellence and their global network acting, of course, together with patients, together with partners in industry, together with those who want to change um, this disease and the life of patients who have it. And um, as we started to do, we will put uh, relevant information, including links to papers we talked about, drugs we talked about, uh, recent consensus uh, initiatives in the show notes. So go check that out, find more information here on this episode, but also on the UCARE website, of course. Stay tuned, whether you're a urticaria patient, a sometimes treater of urticaria or a urticariologist or involved in the development of new and better treatments for this stupid disease. Uh, let's work together. That's what Martin closed us with, and that's what I want to leave you with. Martin, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening, tuning in. If you did not have a chance to listen to all of the previous episodes, um, I strongly recommend you do that. And if you check them all out, then do look forward together with me to your next episode of All Things Urticaria. Stay well. Bye-bye.